tell you what to think about a movie. You have to figure that out on your own. All I can do is speak from afar and uh, once a week on your podcast player, give you some clues and let you know if you're on the right track. You have the names yourself, the director, the screenwriter, the actor who had that small scene toward the beginning and then was also in that episode of Magnum P.I. you remember? That should tell you a lot. With a film like this, you build from the outer edges and go step by step. Don't get bogged down in the grosses, the Oscar noms. Follow the full cast and crew section of its IMDb page. Chris, I don't have time for your chicken <laughs> shit. Tell me what you know. It was the butler. The butler did it. Well, we're obviously doing a little Robert Redford, Hal Holbrook in the parking garage homage to all the president's men. Which Alan, is this week's movie. Well, I was going to say it's Alan J. Pacula's movie. But yes, we're doing 1976's All the President's Men. Redford was the producer of Note. His company was the company which, well, as you would if you were Robert Redford, you get the studio to buy the source material for you. You don't have to lay out your own cash. $450,000 for the rights to Woodstein's book, All the President's Men. A book that hadn't even been published yet. Correct. Like Jaws, around the same time. Again, it was a media sensation. Interestingly, both Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein say that Redford's sort of notes to them early on in the process of writing the book ended up influencing the way the book was put together in it being very much a story of how they found the story. One of the things that's interesting about this movie is you don't ever see the bad guys such as they are except in archival video footage. And you see the burglars, but it really stays true to, what did Redford say? It's a how done it about a who done it. That's good. Some funny quote like that. Well, it's very much a procedural about journalism. I guess the most unfortunate thing is that the movie just doesn't really have anything to say about what's going on in society today <laughs> or politics. Yeah, it's been it's been relegated to the ash heap of history because yeah, this was uh, a one-time thing that it <laughs> now looks very dated. No one could possibly understand any of this. As if the president would be in charge of some <laughs> far-ranging criminal conspiracy and cover-up. Thank God those days are over. And also employing incompetence, top to bottom. <laughs> Would never happen. I mean, obviously, the parallels to the present day are incredible. I mean, when I watched it again just last night, and I will say on the record, this is one of my top five films. I've watched this movie so many times, I get more and more out of it every time. This time, I was really fixated on the filmmaking. That's what mm -hmm. I was paying most attention to. In previous viewings, I've paid attention to, obviously, the great performances of Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, who avoid a lot of the tropes of the buddy comedy, which apparently mm -hmm. is what William Goldman's original screenplay would have turned it into. There's a whole host of things written about who wrote it. The conventional thinking right now is that the structure belongs to William Goldman, but that a lot of Goldman's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid-esque banter was paired out by Redford and Pacula, and that a embarrassing draft turned in by Carl Bernstein and his <laughs> then-girlfriend Nora Ephron, in which he was- It was the Bernstein story. <laughs> it was the Carl Bernstein story. <laughs> Carl Bernstein saves the world. And to his credit, even Carl Bernstein says- yeah, in retrospect, that wasn't the most flattering script to put forward, yeah. and we treated William Goldman pretty poorly. It's pretty funny to, or pretty interesting to read just how young Woodward and Bernstein were mm -hmm. at this time. Younger even than Dustin Hoffman and oh, Robert really? Redford, who were both something like seven years younger. That's young. Yes, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman are seven years older than, Bo than Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Wow. So they were like really kids, and it's also, by now, it's so in the pantheon, as well as so much of this relationship between Hollywood and journalism 
journalism. We live in a time when journalists mm-hmm. have become celebrities. In fact, we're already sort of in the twilight of that, and they've been taken over yeah, I was by say, other uh, types of celebrities. I don't think journalists are celebrities anymore. Not in the same way. Now it's in some ways like politicians and cable news pundits. You know, people follow Rachel Maddow and think of her or Chuck Todd or mm-hmm. uh, Lawrence O'Donnell as kind of celebrities. But it's really interesting to think that this was sort of the beginning of it. Yeah. You know, you had forwarded me that oral history, which made mention, did you read the article from 75 that the Washington yes. Post wrote? So in 1975, while the movie was being made, the Washington Post assigned two or three of their snarkiest pop culture writers, one of whom was Tom Shales, who would go on to write many great oral history books, including a Saturday Night Live book that's fantastic. He wrote a pretty snarky kind of rundown of them versus us and kind of taking the position that like, you know, we're actually the cool kids and these movie stars don't know what the fuck's going on and yeah. we're not at all cowed by their presence and sort of laughing at some of their colleagues who were, you know, doing their hair whenever Dusty or Robert would be floating through the newsroom. It's a funny article more because if you look back on it now, a lot of the fears that they had and the snark that they were evincing in it uh, did not come to pass. No. Whatever criticisms you might have about either Hollywood or the movie, the integrity of the movie stands. And I think it's pretty funny to look back on it now and, and think of uh, just how kind of wrong they were. And also to think a movie like this got made with stars of the magnitude that these guys were at the time. They were so fortunate that really Robert Redford's power at the time in Hollywood was enough to quash what would have been very understandable concerns from a studio yeah. that you're going to make a movie about that? Keep in mind, in 1976, everyone had just lived through all this shit. It would be like putting out a Trump miniseries right now. Oh, wait, <laughs> Which someone's a- <laughs> doing that. <laughs> what, yeah, what is it? Brendan Gleeson as oh. Trump and Jeff Daniels as Comey? <laughs> I do want to see Brendan Gleeson as Trump for the Baroque comic sans nature. I assume that performance will be imbued uh-huh. with. But I don't want to watch it. We, we have to live through it. I don't want to watch it. And that's very much, I think, what, what a concern of the studio was. Not even a movie about that in the sense of like, here's a towering portrayal of a corrupt but human Richard Nixon and his downfall. No, not going to do that movie. This is just a movie about the newspaper reporters who wrote all the stories. Right. That brought it all to life. We are on the other side of that because I think by now it is conventional wisdom of whatever's in the news, any sort of angle of it, anybody's going to try to make. Again, this, uh, the Brendan Gleeson, (laughs) Jeff Daniels thing is a perfect example. Whereas at that time, this was a hard sell. The Sting was 73. Great Gatsby was a big flop, right? That was 74. Three Days of the Condor came out just before this. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, it's adapted from a book, Seven Days of the Condor. So they had to condense it. 1976. Dusty was coming off. Lenny. This was his next film. He had done Papillon, Straw Dogs, Little Big Man, Midnight Cowboy was 69. So this was his follow-up to Lenny. Didn't he get Academy Award nomination for Lenny? I believe so. I, I read something in one of the things that said, amongst the business... Redford had been around longer, but Dustin Hoffman was maybe a little hotter at the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's where they came up with the credit solution that I guess was used with John Wayne and um, Jimmy Stewart. Stewart. So some movie with John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart, and it's sort of like on the poster, John Wayne's listed first and Jimmy Stewart's listed second. But in the movie, Jimmy Stewart's built first and John Wayne is built second. You know, these are Hollywood egos, folks. You got to handle these delicately. This was in uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance in 62. So that's the billing that was used here. And, you know, watching it this time, all the times I've watched it, I guess I'm, you know, of course, you're always aware you're watching Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. But I realized watching it last night, when I watch All the President's Men, I don't have the sense of like, I'm watching a Robert Redford film in quotations or a Dustin Hoffman film in quotations. 
that's, I think, a testament to how in it they were together and how much they were able to subsume overwhelming movie star screen charisma. You have two guys that possess that. When we were doing Smoking the Bandit, we speculated that maybe the reason there aren't a lot of scenes between Burt Reynolds and Jackie Gleason, other than the one scene in the roadside diner, is because it's just too much. They cancel each other out. Yet, this is very much their story. To mm-hmm. their credit, they I think everybody involved made, A, the greatest newspaper movie ever made, and B, turned in a really remarkable piece of filmic art, even as they also turned in an incredibly accessible piece of entertainment. It's watchable. It's intelligent. It doesn't talk down to the viewer. You have to kind of figure out what's going on just like they do. Mm -hmm. The direction, the cinematography, the editing, the sound design, the acting, the screenplay, it's a textbook movie. Well, yes, it's all wonderful in that way, but I wouldn't call it a textbook movie only because it's strange, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, like the very fact that the two leads, not just that they subsumed their egos, it's also written in a way there's no backstory to either of them. You get so little of... um, their person, rather, you get their personality from the performance, right. but you get so much, so little in the way of detail about it. There's not a lot of actual action, and the plot mm-hmm. becomes almost secondary because they're uncovering this mm-hmm. plot. All you have is them going and just asking the same questions over and mm-hmm. over. And it's, <laughs> in some ways, it's a testament to just the willpower yeah. of shoe leather journalism, and in some ways, I think metaphorically, of the American people of kind of just mm-hmm. sticking with it and wanting the truth to come out, even if they're scared. They keep asking everybody. You could see the discomfort they have with answering the questions, they're willing to finally overcome it. And like you said, it's completely accessible. And yet at the same time, it's also very different from what you'd expect. As somebody put it in the oral history, it's almost an art film in that way. I think someone somewhere in there said that it's really a movie about why people end up talking to reporters. I had a really new appreciation for each of those scenes where people are reluctantly but finally revealing important information to the two guys because that is handled with the same intelligence and complexity as the famous scenes with Redford and Hal Holbrook as Deep Throat in the parking garage. Jane Alexander, number one, Stephen Collins, Mm -hmm. um, these great actors who convey the need to come clean, balanced with the very last thing they should be doing personally in terms of protecting themselves is speaking to two reporters from the Washington Post. And to your point earlier about how really the only backstory you get, you know, you'll learn that, you know, Bob Woodward has only been on the paper nine months. Carl Bernstein's brilliantly introduced by stealing his finished copy and correcting it himself. Yeah. And also they don't really like each other for much of the movie. And that kind of works really well. Yeah. And I also like that Dustin Hoffman portrays Carl Bernstein as making these great leaps that he doesn't actually have the factual underpinning for. So, of course, that appeals to me, Chris. (laughs) I feel a kindred spirit here. You can say it. Yeah, yeah, I can. (laughs) You know what they do in the great original... Um, What's the thing Kevin Spacey was doing? It was for Netflix. Never heard of him. Netflix's first big hit. House of Cards? House of Cards. The actor in the original does this great... You might think that, Matthew. I couldn't possibly comment. The cast is fantastic. Jack Warden, Martin Balsam, Jason Robards, Meredith Baxter before she was Meredith Baxter Bernie yes. for crying out loud. Ned Beatty. F. Murray Abraham. Dominic Chianese. Well-known Cuban. Playing Cuban. American actor. <laughs> it's a great cast. Lindsay Krauss. Oh, I love Lindsay Krauss. She's great. Boy, her wounded 
her woundedness when she goes to see a guy she was romantically involved with that she does not want to go see in order to get them a list of the committee to reelect the president staff members is great. There are so many one scene players in the film who are so fantastic. One of the things that makes it work so well is because the stakes are so high, not to jump to the end, but you know, in the end, it's like, what's on the line except for American democracy and all that sort of thing. Yeah. The stakes are sort of so high that the the scenes can be really kind of short and Mm -hmm. punchy. And and I think it gives those actors a, a very definite thing to play because those emotions are so high. There's something about that that really helps it along and just adds attention that even if somebody uh, didn't know about the events around right. this, it's still there and makes everybody seem on edge. Let's play a little clip of Woodstein as Jack Warden refers to them. This is the scene where Robert Redford notices Dustin Hoffman stealing his copy out of the copy editor tray. How's it going? What are you doing? Partial. What? Partial. What's wrong with it? Nothing, nothing. It's good. Then what are you doing with it? I'm just helping. It's a little fuzzy. May I have it? I don't think you're saying what you mean. I know exactly what I mean. Not here. I can't tell from this whether Hunt works for Colson or Colson works for Hunt. May I have it? Please? Some of your conclusions. May I have it? Yes, I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not looking for a fight either. I'm just aware of the fact that you've only been here nine months. What does that got to do with anything? Well, I've been in the business since I'm 16. What are you saying? Well, I'm trying to tell you that if you'd read mine and then read yours... May I read yours? Yeah. I walked by, gave yours a glance, it didn't look right, so I just figured I'd refine it a little. That first paragraph has to have more clarity. The reader's going to understand. You don't mention Colson's name for the third paragraph. I think mine's better, but you go ahead and read it. If you think yours is better, we'll give yours to the desk. I've got Colson's name up front. He was a White House consultant and nobody knows right. it. Yours is better. If you're going to do it, do it right. Here are my notes. If you're going to hype it, hype it with the facts. I don't mind what you did. I mind the way you did. Woodward, Bernstein, you're both on the story. Now don't fuck it up. The great Jack Warden coming in with the button. And with great managerial expertise. <laughs> I think admonishing people from time to time not to fuck it up is a great managerial quality. That's yeah, what I tell myself. <laughs> Good luck editing the episode. Don't fuck it up. Don't how, many fuck times it up. Have I, how many times have I said that? You to got you? it, Chief. Doesn't that motivate you to do your best, <laughs> put your best self forward? That is a pet peeve of mine. A lot of times, like presidents will do that on TV or something like that. It's like, sure. like I don't care what you have to do, just get it done. Right. <laughs> so that stern tone of voice, like that's all that they have to think of to be a manager. That's a good opportunity, that clip, to discuss the famous set. Yes. That was all constructed on two Warner Brothers sound stages after the production realized it was completely unfeasible to shoot a Hollywood feature film and put out a daily newspaper. In the same room. <laughs> which they were going to try and do. But look, Hollywood is able to get around it. And uh, there was a lot of description of how much they went through, how much it costs, mm-hmm. all that. And you know, it's funny. It's one of those, like you said, this movie is is wonderful in so many ways. And you almost don't realize how wonderful it is while you're watching mm-hmm. it because it is so seamless. One of the things being that newsroom set is so real and mm-hmm. so alive. And to describe it beforehand, it's like, why bother going through all of that? It doesn't really matter, you know. And yet it just creates this setting. They talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about, you know, the fluorescent lighting of the newsroom, which is very different from a glamorous Hollywood type of lighting. The lengths to which the production went to recreate the Washington Post newsroom included someone went through and took a photo of every desk in the Washington Post newsroom, turned that over to set decoration production designer and basically said, here you go, go recreate these. 
they recreated phone books that were no longer in print yep. in order to be period specific. The colors of the desks, the lighting that you're mentioning, the overhead fluorescent lighting where Gordon Willis may be the most influential cinematographer of our time, famously did both Godfather movies. He was known as the Prince of Darkness mm-hmm. because, if you know, you look at those famous Godfather scenes. He's not revealing all in the frame. He's keeping it very murky. And so this is an amazing choice made early on to go with fluorescent lighting in the newsroom scenes and to have it have that kind of flat look. So the set is incredible. And it's like, what's the episode? Someone who's saying, like, if you build the set for the actors, you're going to get a lot more. It was Heather's, right? Yes. And Spielberg was talking about that in our Close Encounters of the Third Kind episode, where Francois Truffaut really loved not the impressive aircraft hangar set upon which they were building. No, the, the recreated the, uh, motel room. It was the recreated motel room that he thought, oh, no, this is a set. Talking about Gordon Willis and how he usually shoots with a more sort of murky, there's plenty of murk oh, in, yeah. in the movie. Yes. It makes for such a great contrast how bright and unglamorous the lighting mm-hmm. and the setting of that newsroom is yes. uh, compared to the murkiness of the real world outside. There had been newspaper movies before, and there certainly have been many since then. But the tone of this one, mm-hmm. instead of His Girl Friday, it's yes. not about the fun of it. It's about asking the same people the same questions, yeah. making the same phone calls just until you mm-hmm. get a break. And they're still able to make it compelling. Part of Alan J. Pacula's Paranoia Trilogy. Yes. The Paranoia Trilogy famously includes 1971's Clute, Mm -hmm. then Parallax View in 74, and concludes in 1976 with All the President's Men. Those are three great movies to watch if you really want to jump into this kind of era of Hollywood. It's a really interesting troika because Clute is pretty realistic, you know, and it's a a cop thing. Yeah. This is super realistic, but about a journalist, and Mm -hmm. it's about journalists, rather, And it's also a little bit more highfalutin in the conflict. And the parallax view is sort of a little bit in between. It's also about a journalist, but it's so hyped up. Yeah. And it has a Baroque plot behind it. But the actual plot of like what Warren Beatty does. Yeah. Like it's pretty simple. (laughs) It moves really good. And and the parallax view has the evildoers as characters. and. Warren Beatty's character is uncovering this vast conspiracy that exists. Which has almost like a science fiction bet. Like yeah. it's, it's definitely pushing it past real life. Yeah. It's definitely the kookiest of the three movies. Yeah. I hadn't seen Clute and got it's so much hype. Everyone will tell you it's so fantastic and great. So I think when I finally saw it, it probably couldn't help but not live right. up to that. It suffers a little bit from... There's sort of like a peak Donald Sutherland era where his on-screen weirdness was kind of the thing. That's the reason yeah. why you're using him in anything. So it's kind of like, I'd love to see Donald Sutherland be like a police detective. Okay, here you go. You get Donald Sutherland and Jane Fonda as a prostitute. And, and it, it writes itself. Didn't really come together in the same way. But, you know, famously, the three films are, I don't know how much this was intended, or this is what people are putting upon them after the fact to right. say that they tell us the story of ourselves in the 70s. Paranoia, fear. This is what we're starting to experience as a people. I could sort of see that, especially like it grows from Clute to Parallax View, but then it shrinks a little bit to this, mm-hmm. only in the sense that it becomes more realistic. And it's almost like a, a maturation of, mm-hmm. instead of thinking about these crazy conspiracy theories, we can worry about about the horrible conspiracies that are actually happening <laughs> exactly. in front of our Yeah, we don't need to make faces. them up. And another still holds true. <laughs> another correlation to the present day. Yeah. I wasn't really aware until jumping in this time how much Redford was responsible for putting the movie together. Mm-hmm. When you were mentioning before how you don't really learn a lot of backstory about them, I think confident movie making often uses movie stars in this manner. Like, you don't need to spend all the time on the backstory. 
in that one scene, you really have both characters of the actors on display. Redford embodies this kind of all-American boy decency. You know, he's, let's do things the right way. Right. And you have the other guy who's like, let's just make it better. Let me do what I have to do to get where I need to get on this story. I've been in the business since I'm 16. But there is overlap between them because Woodward is big enough to say like, all right, you're- You wrote it better. You're right. So I just like the way they use those personalities in order to have us experience the story. It takes a lot of restraint not to have a hero shot when you have Robert Redford in a movie. I mean, I'd want to just take a shot of him poised atop a parking garage in profile, like that damn profile and that hair, that straw, that magnificent (laughs) red strawberry blonde (laughs) hair. I just want to run my hands through it, you know? Eat it with a spoon. Man, if they had made a Captain America movie then, he would have been a great Captain America. He looks like a giant scoop of butterscotch pudding. When people waste time on some of those backstory things, it's because, you know, usually that becomes the theme of the film, that it's something in that person. Whereas here, it really is about the work, just they're doing it. You only get, these seem like real people because you have these two vibrant personalities Mm -hmm. that are on there. So it's just like, great, we can dispense with, with that stuff. Let's meet Deep Throat in his beautiful parking garage. Spoiler alert for real life, Deep Throat is Mark Felt. Way to ruin it, Chris. Where are you? Stuck. The story is stalled on us. And you thought I'd help? I'll never quote you. I wouldn't quote you even as an anonymous source. I mean, you'd be on deep background. You can trust me, you know that. Can you tell me what you know? You tell me what you know. Hunt worked for Colson at the White House. Hunt was investigating Kennedy and Chappaquiddick. That should tell you a lot. What else? We're beginning to hear a lot about a lawyer creep named Gordon Liddy. very bright guys and things got out of hand. Hunt's come in from the cold. Supposedly he's got a lawyer with $25,000 in a brown paper bag. They follow the money. What do you mean? 
Oh, I can't tell you that. But you could tell me that. No, I have to do this my way. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. Yeah, does that movie felt count as a sequel? Remember, we were working in the office when they were making that. I think we all knew it was going to be a bomb. Liam Neeson not killing anybody? Forget it. Yeah, who's interested in that? Such great use of that far distant whistle to induce a little paranoia. The Smoking Man. Yeah. Chris Carter, this is one of his favorite movies, and he said in creating The X-Files that this was very much the tone that he wanted to go for. With a little jaunty banter. A little bit more, yes. So he brought William Goldman in, who dusted (laughs) off his... uh, (laughs) I've got a lot of of barbs that these two could use. Yeah. The thing that I wanted to say about Mark Felt, which I didn't... Which, of course, makes sense, but Woodward, of course, knew who Deep Throat was when doing this. And so in the production of this movie, when casting Hal Holbrook... uh, He was like, he looks too much like the real guy. He didn't, you know, he didn't say it, but he definitely was like, I think he said like, maybe subconsciously, like I did steer it that way, but there was, <laughs> he was just very conscious of like, right. I can't reveal it here. I watched a Redford produced reassessment of All the President's Men that aired on Discovery Channel on the 35th anniversary or something. I think it was John Stewart who said, you know, if you don't have all these scenes between Holbrook and Redford, you don't have Deep Throat, it doesn't really hold together as a whodunit. The thriller uh-huh. aspect hinges upon these few scenes in the parking garage. And when Redford goes to meet him when he's overslept and Bernstein calls his apartment and Redford wakes up, I'd never noticed before, as he leaves his apartment and runs down the street, you hear on the soundtrack the sound of a camera shutter clicking. Huh. Just to add that level of paranoia. Am I being watched? They don't reference it at all. But if you listen to that scene again, you can hear it. And it's just those little aspects, which is probably why the sound design won an Academy Award. <laughs> that little <laughs> whistle, just that haunting there. whistle. It's like, yeah. it's not telegraphing it for a viewer, but that far off whistle, that's the paranoia. It's one of those things about this movie that it is a very adult film. Yes. Uh, not it in, does not. Not in a 70s X-rated way. Okay, maybe we were talking Maybe we watched two different, different things. <laughs> No. Oh, you You're watched like, all the presidents, men. All of them. And <laughs> then some. But no, it's, you know, as you said, it trusts the viewer's mm-hmm. intelligence. When that whistling happens, there's no camera jittering back and forth. Mm-hmm. It stays there and it trusts the paranoia that yes. people are feeling in yep. real life. You're all traumatized, so I don't need to spell this out for you, but here's some stuff you're going to instantaneously recognize. I think that your signature openings get appropriate amount of attention. I don't think, however, that your signature endings get enough. I think we need to center them in the narrative of the podcast. So I'll cut it back into the center. What Chris does is he plays the last line of dialogue from a famous or infamous or known or slightly well-known film. And what we want you to do is be first to figure out what it was. When the episode goes up, we'll put up a image from the film that you're talking about that doesn't give it away. And we will say, who can identify? Chris's final line from this week's episode. Oh, I love that. And we'll do I that think on, that's great. We'll do that on Facebook. Facebook finally has a reason for being. There's a funny line, Goldman, that calls back to our Body Snatchers episode. You know, when Woodward's character is handed the Watergate story by being assigned to cover the story of just a break-in at Democratic headquarters in the Watergate building, when he comes back, Jack Warden's character has to defend Woodward remaining on the story to the great Martin Balsam playing Howard Simons. 
And Howard Simon says something like, two weeks ago, he was uncovering rat turds in restaurants, just like Donald (laughs) Sutherland in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Invasion of the Body Snatchers did for health inspections what (laughs) all the president's men did for investigative journalism. Do you think that like health inspectors as a group have movie, like gravitate to movies where, where health inspector characters exist? Oh, yeah. They're really hoping. Like journalists, it's a, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches. They got all sorts of stuff to watch. But health inspectors, they've only got the one movie. that They got an old VHS tape that they just keep playing over and over. It's going to wear out soon. Do you like a newspaper movie? I don't know. I hadn't really thought of it until watching this. Like, I certainly loved both this and Spotlight. The paper? I haven't seen Michael Keaton? But I've seen uh, his Ron Girl Howard's Friday the paper. and the front page. Sure. You know, and I guess the paper is a remake of the front you page. You haven't right? seen a little film called uh, Citizen Kane? You know, but I didn't think of that as a newspaper well, film. I mean, but, but newspaper yeah, magnet. But There's a lot of spinning newspaper headlines magnet. on that one. Oh, uh, well, listen, spinning newspaper headlines, you know, you find those in <laughs> Batman the TV series, too. Well, I love a newspaper movie. Yeah. I think it's probably one of my favorite subgenres. Uh-huh. I will definitely watch the paper all the way through anytime it's on. It's like an underappreciated Ron Howard movie. Right. That's uh, Michael Keaton, Michael Robert Keaton, Duvall. Duvall is amazing and great Keaton. It's a very Keaton Keaton. You want to see it. Jason Robards is in it as well. He is. I mean, unless IMDb is lying to me, which I refuse to believe. But, you know, um, a lot of comparisons were made between All the President's Men and Spotlight. It's interesting also because of the differences. You know, both of them are very sort of unglamorous mm-hmm. uh, in their portrayal and pr- yep. procedural. But it's such a different tone, I think, because of the nature of the things that are being investigated. Mm-hmm. Even though they are both sort of grand conspiracies, the government versus the Catholic Church. But I think the kind of impact. Again, with this, it mm-hmm. is about democracy and yes. America. And so there's a sort of mythicness behind it. Right. Whereas with Spotlight, I think because it is about people being hurt yes. more directly. Spotlight has a great time. Tucci performance too. Tucci doesn't often get to do something kind of so multidimensional in a way. Like I know he's a great actor, but his character as a lawyer representing some of the victims, his character is allowed to sort of be portrayed one way throughout much of the movie, kind of uncaring and disinterested when in fact, entirely the opposite yeah. is actually going on. Such a interesting and brave choice that they made to let him seem that way to us for much of the movie and then reveal that, no, he's actually been doing this work for all the right reasons yeah. for a long, long time. And the standoffishness and what has read like a, a lack of concern is actually a jadedness. And I think we've mentioned this on a podcast before. It's just an iconically great Jason Robards turn in what he at first felt was going to be somewhat of a thankless role. There's an anecdote where Woodward says they offered Robards $50,000 to play Ben Bradley as a famously larger than life Boston Brahmin society, you know, towering figure. And he says that Robarts took the script home and read it and came back a day to later and said to Pacula and Redford, I can't do it. They said, why can't you do it? He said, well, all this guy does is run around and say, where's the fucking story? And they said, that's what the editor of the That's Washington it. Post does. All you have to do is find 15 different ways to say, where's the fucking story? And he was yeah. like, okay, I guess I can do it. Yeah. And they really wanted him. And he was not in the best he place. He was not in the best time. place at the time. And he had a little bit of a drinking problem, which I'm not unconvinced you can't see on screen in a couple <laughs> key moments. The famous moment where they go to his home at the very end of the movie. He seems a little drunk. I don't know if he was. I read once I read a conflicting thing. He said, no, no, no. He'd actually gotten sober by this time. So I don't know. Unless they did wake him up. They at did wake two him in up. the morning or That's whatever. You know? Speaking of waking up, one of the genius things in the movie, all the phone call scenes are done in real time with yeah. actually someone on the other end of the phone, as opposed to just having the actors mimic one side of a phone call. I think it lends the movie something so great. I, I know I shouldn't be telling you this. Uh, 
gave it to Mr. Stans. I beg your pardon? I, I gave it to Stans. Maurice Stans? The head of finance for Nixon? Yes, in, in Washington. Now, what he did with it, I, I really do not know. I see. Uh, were there any other checks, sir, that you might be aware of that could have come... That's, that's all I, I had to say. Mr. McGregor. Mr. Dahlberg. I'm sorry. Thank you very much. Before we do, I want to play a little of um, Robarts to do something a little other than just say, where's the fucking story? <laughs> and in this scene, he's dressed in a tuxedo, getting ready to go to some yet another society event. Mitchell, no, he was talking to a reporter. Yeah, but I think I woke him up. And good notes? Verbatim. He really said that about Mrs. Graham. Well, I'll cut the words of her tit and print it. Why? It was the family newspaper. You know, once when I was reporting, Lyndon Johnson's top guy gave me the word. They were looking for a successor for J. Edgar Hoover. I wrote it, and the day it appeared, Johnson held a press conference and appointed Hoover head of the FBI for life. When he was done, turned to his top guy, and the president said, call Ben Bradley and tell him, fuck you. <laughs> Well, everybody said you did it, Ben. You screwed up. You stuck us with Hoover forever. I screwed up, but I wasn't wrong. How much can you tell me about Deep Throat? How much do you need to know? You trust him? Yeah. I can't do the reporting for my reporters, which means I have to trust them. Trusting anybody. Run that baby. Three great things in that scene from Robards. One is when when he when after he says run that baby and he hands the copy to Dustin Hoffman's character. He does a little hitch of his trousers, mm -hmm. and then as he walks by the desk, he taps a desk with his finger in delight and then does that hand clap. I think it was either Sally Quinn, who became Ben Bradley's wife, or maybe even Catherine Graham, who had said, I don't know if he studied Ben Bradley, but that was like so exactly a, a Bradley, ben Bradley thing, yeah. mannerism. And yeah. I also love the way they're so deferential to him in all their scenes with him, like the fear that he instilled in the reporters uh, legendarily is on display in the film. Besides the fear, there's also such like an admiration and mm -hmm. both, ki both kids, both kids, uh, both well, played like, well, I was say, they, played they like really kids played, and a dad. Play <laughs> it like kids, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I found it exciting because of the kind of movie it is and, to, and uh, the fact that this was something that people do get into out of a passion to do yes. a kind of work. The joy and pleasure he is having in giving them advice based on his own mistakes. There's another brilliant scene with Robards. At one point, he has them all in his office and they're trying to convince him to go with a certain part of the story, and he wants to, but he knows that he needs more in order to do it. And there's a scene where he's kind of behind his desk, and he he's kind of doing the hard-ass act, but he's also kind of looking at them to say, talk me into it. And he does that just physically with his face. It's a, it's a really great scene. And it's just one of those things you realize, like, man, without any one of these things, the whole movie would not hold together. And to have a presence like Jason Robards, 
you can't just have anybody play Ben Bradley. Right. You got to have somebody you, the viewer, have that towering respect for. And in 1976, audiences would have had that for Jason Robert. One of the things that fascinated me about this is how it set such a template, not just for journalism movies, but how journalism is seen. And there a lot has been made for the amount of uh, the swelling ranks mm-hmm. in journalism schools after this movie yes. came out. You know, yes. people wanting to be investigative journalists because of seeing it this way. And you get the contrast in these articles from the actual Washington Post reporters mm-hmm. who really saw themselves as professionals doing yes. a thing. But then it was given this kind of noble sheen because of this movie and because of, you know, its sure. relationship to democracy. Uh, you know, <laughs> in air quotes. Like in air quotes. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's really interesting to think of like how influential, how it sort of changed oh our perception of it. Everything about how the movie starts, how, speaking of Jason Robards, the camera doesn't move throughout the first 23 minutes of the film until Jason Robards comes on screen as Ben Bradley. And then we get the first of, I had read a lot about Gordon Willis and the cinematography of it leading up to watching it last night. And so I had a new appreciation for these handful of long dolly shots through the newsroom and how complicated they were to get right. Because as you said, really in the background of what's going on, everyone is doing like a working newsroom. Everything worked. And people were working and given stuff to do so that in the background, it's all this. And you had these really complicated, long railroad tracks set. And that's the first time when you watch the movie again, watch for this. It's the first time you'll see that camera move is to capture the vigor and the speed of Ben Bradley as he walks through his newsroom. The score, shout out to... Another of our episodes, David Shire, did the music for this. Mm-hmm. Now, Chris, I'm going to give you a quiz. What other full cast and crew episode movie did David Shire do the music for? Let's see, David Shire married to Talia Shire. Correct. Uh, well, and then now married to? D.D. Cohn. D.D. Cohn, yes, who was in Greece. So he also did the movie for Greece. Well, he did the movie for Greece? Did the music for the movie of Greece. <laughs> <laughs> wow, when you reach... It's 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 really apparent. I guess that's an endearing quality of yours. I'm hoping. Oh, right? Zodiac, right? Is that the one you're thinking No, no, dude, I love Zodiac. I, I know. I was, th- I was definitely throwing chum in the water with that one. He's so weird that he did the music for that, by the way. That's not a movie I would associate with him. Yeah. Um, no, I'm obviously referring to the movie that it's taking me some time to look up so that <laughs> I can refer to it as if I know it. That? Saturday Night Fever. Yes. And also, once I scroll up, I will also tell you that he did Norma Ray. the music for Max Dugan Returns. That's what. No, <laughs> uh, no, he did something else that we did. I I think it's I think he came Monkey up. Shines, dude. What you did? Yes, I knew it was in there. Oh man, he did Monkey Shines. Talk about being a uh, versatile composer. Yeah, if you can do all the President's Men, Monkey Shines, and Zodiac, I can see what Dee Dee Khan is interested in. You know. Of course, Didi Khan from Facts of Life is how most of us know her. Our audience is very sophisticated. We go to the movies. Are you implying of, that uh, Facts of Life is an unsophisticated viewing choice? I, it's less sophisticated God. than, say, Greece. I think that's the thing. Well, <laughs> God, your snob, your snob appeal is showing, Chris. Sorry. I want them. You know what? I want our audience to feel good about themselves. I was confusing her with Mindy Khan. Aha! Didi Khan is not in. <laughs> is not in. <laughs> Oh, Mindy, Dee Dee. I mean, look, E. Cone. Who cares? I had the. I had, the, I had like. I'm sure David Shire is married to somebody in the cast. I had two thirds of, of the syllables right. 
<laughs> no, he's married to Didi Cohen, but Didi Cohen wasn't in Facts of Life. Mindy Cohen was. Yeah, I'm saying, but I'm sure he also was married at some point to somebody in Facts of Life. I want to now try and see if they're sisters, because that would at least save me a little bit. Uh, okay, good luck. But I think they spell their last names differently. Uh, do they? No, it's Didi Cohen, C O N N. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. Well, I mean, one of them could have changed it. So, not to be. Yeah, okay. I'll just give it up. I'm, I'm wrong and I'll give it up. Sure, anything's possible. <laughs> Anything is possible. Anyway, David Shire's score, I believe the first music comes into All the President's Men 27 minutes into the film. And they had an anecdote that said, he, after he saw the screen, he's like, You guys, I feel bad actually yeah. being paid for this, you know? And they said, Well, we're not paying you by the note because there's really only a couple of places, but it's a great score. It's got this propulsive, staccato, repeated strings and cello bass notes and. It really, really works, and it complements the really naturalistic vibe of everything yes. else in the movie. Right. It's not overpowering. It's not uh, no. melodramatic, and it's not ever-present. I was reading an anecdote about, and I don't know if somebody was exaggerating or not. They said it was the most expensive shot in the whole movie is a five-second shot where Bob Woodward gets out of one cab and gets into another. In order to go meet Deep Throat, he has a Baroque way of getting to it, so he's not followed. So he gets out of one cab in front of the Kennedy Center mm -hmm. and gets into another cab. So they had all of these extras that they had to coordinate. Which they casted via the radio. Yeah. Come on down to be in a movie. Come on a tuxedo. <laughs> be in a movie. And uh, they would wet, as you know, we had talked about this before, yes, the wet street the roads to give it a noirish feel and look. But I guess people who were doing that were getting the water from the fountains. And so they depleted the fountains so much <laughs> that they couldn't do the shot. I don't know if they went and bought more water. Well, no, they said that enough time passed. There's a shot where Redford crosses in front of the fountain. And that's where you see the fountain illuminated and the water spouting. And they let enough time pass where it, it came back. When they said about the most expensive shot, I guess that's yes. what it was. They had to just wait with all these people in tuxedos just waiting for that to come back on. There's two other amazing shots worth talking about. One is the Dahlberg Zoom. Which that's a literal six-minute push-in to Robert Redford. And obviously the use of the split diopter. And this is one of the first movies where you can see that it was necessary for Gordon Willis to figure out how to have someone in the foreground of a shot but have action in the background also be in focus. Right. Nowadays, of course, that's not difficult to accomplish with technical wizardry. But in 1976, you had to actually have two different types of lenses to aim the camera through in order to create that effect. And that's what's known as a split diopter. And this movie famously deploys that numerous times to great effect. One of them is during what's known as the Dahlberg Zoom. And this is when Redford is on the phone with Ken Dahlberg. And it's one of the most important initial phone conversations. And in the background, all the other reporters are watching, I think, Edwin Muskie resign as the vice presidential candidate or something. And they're all gathered around a TV. And it's a literal six minute slow push in to Redford. So slow that you don't even really notice that it's occurring. And the other one that I loved reading about was the Library of Congress overhead shot. I watched a featurette where they showed them doing this. And it, you always have this thing in movies of this era where these shots that are so good that you don't really think about what's behind them. Mm -hmm. But then you see the thing that's behind them and it's both less impressive and somehow more impressive. Like, guess what they did? Well, they had a camera in a box and they pulled it up on some pulleys and they pulled it all the way up to the top dome of the Library of Congress, which is a long way. And there's a few dissolves in the shot that they use in the movie. Um, but that's what I love about this era of movies, Chris. You had to devise a way to do that. You had to do rigging and you had to build a box for the camera and a winch. And you had to try it a number of times 
and then you had to go get the fucking film developed to see if your if try worked. worked. And then you're like, oh shit, we just need to go 14 microns this way. Let's go shoot it all over again and get the film developed all over again and figure out now what else we have. So that's a great shot. And it would be so easy to talk yourself out of going to all that trouble. Because all it really is, is the two guys going through stacks and stacks and stacks of requests for materials from the library. And it's also one shot. Like one quick shot. <laughs> it's one shot. And, you know, I, I had seen that shot before and sort of knew of it just in my mind because it's such a famous shot. I thought it would be at like a more pivotal moment, but no, yeah. it's a nope. blind alley they go down. But I think like recreating the newsroom with that much detail, yeah. you know, there's the the old story about Van Halen getting their, their contracts and the no sure, the writers, M&Ms. the brown the writers saying the no yeah. brown M&Ms. It's to see if somebody is paying yeah. attention and the, the thinking being like, if you're not paying attention to that detail, you're not going to care enough some other thing could go wrong. Yeah. And there's a similar thing with making a movie that if you sweat such a small detail or put that much effort into mm-hmm. something seemingly small, it's indicative of that much more passion for the film and for the project as a whole. And even if that shot isn't the thing that makes it, Mm -hmm. that passion as a whole is what is going to make it um, more likely to be a great piece. I think it's unfortunate that, of course, Alan J. Pacula died tragically and too early in a terrible accident. His voice is one that would be so amazing to hear from now, like in talking about assembling this movie in particular. I guess he didn't speak much about it. He's not included in any of the materials that exist. Like a lot of the making of stuff happened well after the fact. And maybe some of these things happened even after he died in 1998. But I couldn't really find anything of him talking about the movie. Did you find things of him talking in general about other things? Or is he maybe- You know, I didn't really look for that. And it's easy to say Gordon Willis is incredible and delivers so much in this movie because of course he does. That the editor delivered so much because of course he does. But really, there's an anecdote where after they filmed the movie and the film was first assembled, the editor had done something where he kind of was like using a lot of dissolves and sort of overlapping dialogue between scenes. And when Pacula and Redford saw it, they were like, this is totally wrong. I don't want dialogue to overlap scenes. Well, we cut, right. we cut. And they took all that stuff out. And all of a sudden, the movie came to life where in that first pass, it hadn't worked at all. And I think Pacula's decisions as a director throughout the whole movie and just his whole career, he's, he doesn't get a lot of the same, he doesn't get like the Sidney Lumet hagiography, but I think he's fully deserving of that. For me, this is the era of movie I want to watch. It's like, I want to listen to Grateful Dead music from 1971 to 1974. You know, I want to watch American cinema from 1971 to 1978. I like the graininess. I like the film. I like the concept of how movies were made in that era. It's late enough that you can take advantage of some yeah. technological advances, but still early yes. enough that, right, there's some of that ingenuity. Yeah, no, I hear you. And like you said, it was such an interesting time for America. Time, you know, I guess that sort of parallels this in a breakdown uh, physical infrastructure as well as establishment uh, institutions. You can feel that lost feeling in this. And I think it's so fascinating to think, like, as you had pointed out in the beginning, you don't see a lot of people being chased. You don't see the villains. You don't see Haldeman shaking his fist and like, get those two. And yet there is this pervading sense of dread. Yet people also are going through their life normally in the way that people synthesize the fear of the world and then going about their daily life. It's pretty interesting to see. So much of this movie is about how reporters get people to admit the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to hit too much in the head the, the parallels with now. But, you know, one of the funny things about the impeachment that we're potentially looking at, there's no news in the sense of like, like he's been doing all this stuff yeah. out in the open. Yeah, that and is the even most shocking been, thing. What more do we want? Well, everything happens in real time, which is what's so weird to watch a movie like this and think about weeks, months, years past yeah. before these articles revealed actions. Yes. <laughs> and now 
we are living literally within seconds. Of and you get occurring. a little bit of a, you know, obviously the movie. You get inured to it. But you get a little bit of a nod to it in the movie when they're like, how come nobody else is running yes. stories about this? Like, we're that's the only right. ones doing it. You have that fear of a newspaper that's meant to reflect, yes. reflect it at the time. And I think that's, nothing seems big enough at the time. It doesn't seem newsworthy because you don't realize you're seeing something uh, amazing until until after the fact. Yeah, there's a scene early on where one of the other newspaper editors expresses some reservations about pursuing the Watergate story. And, and he, he says what you just said, where, where the editor says something like, what are the Washington Post corner of the market on figuring stuff out on here? Wisdom, like, you know, on wisdom. It's like, on wisdom. He's basically just saying, like, well, this is the business you're in, isn't it? Like, you're supposed to go out and dig up stories. And here yeah. you dug one up and internally... It's sort of like, we can't have found this. But it's also like, we can't be the only ones. Yeah. If at least somebody else was interested. Then we'd know we're onto yeah. something. That guy's great. I don't know who that actor is. Who plays the foreign editor? Is it the foreign editor? John I, McMartin. Yeah. There's another good Pacula anecdote. I read a, I think I sent it to you. There was a great appraisal of the movie that appeared in, I think, Los Angeles Magazine, written by John Borston, who was an associate producer on the movie. And it was a really good article. And he talked in the article about how once they arrived on set, your two lead actors, Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, had two completely different ways of working. And it's been said of Redford before, Redford famously shows up a little late all the time. And that was a thing that annoyed even someone like Paul Newman when they were making Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And Dustin Hoffman is the kind of guy who's there and trying it out and walking around and talking to himself and he's prepared and he wants to go and he wants to do it a hundred different times. And Redford doesn't really work that way. He wants to show up and he has his idea of what he's doing and he'll do it. John Borston says, you know, this is the type of thing. You see this going on in a set and you see someone who's there and prepared and ready to go. And you see a whole lot of people waiting for someone else to show up. Now, granted, Robert Redford had a lot of things going on and he has a lot of roles to play in the movie in addition to just acting in it. And However, when he shows up, he's ready. Like when he, he shows yeah. up, he's ready. But he has a different style of working. So Borston, I just read this quote. He said, but Pacula didn't make a fuss about it. He just wrote it out with enthusiasm, patience, and good humor. He kept everyone focused on the work and he turned what might have been a destructive battle of wills into a constructive collaboration. If his way added six days to the 60 we were already on set, you might call it a 10% overage to manage egos. The sort of thing I could never have captured in my aborted documentary about the making of the film. But Pacula's essential contribution, that's being a Hollywood director. And that's such a great and smart quote. You have these two stars who, you know, that's a lot to manage. And his good naturedness and ability to corral that ended up giving the movie a lot of what makes it special. I liked the Borston. Yeah, it's really um, good. We'll know, link to it in the it. podcast notes for people that are listening. It's a really good read. He is listed as an associate producer on the film. He had been Pacula's assistant yes. on a prior film. There's some great nuts and bolts things that I thought were really interesting, particularly how the film opens with the break-in itself. The security guard, yeah. played by the actual security <laughs> yes. guard, which is a sort of sad story, Frank Willis, yes. who is the security guard who did discover the tape on the door and led to all of this. He played himself in the movie, but I think within days, of when he, it had actually happened. He had been fired from his security mm. job and never was particularly gainfully employed again until his death in 2000. And they have a good anecdote about they knew enough about how the burglary actually occurred that the version we see in the movie is a more cinematic version, exactly, which gives yes. Frank Wills the 
glory of being so on top of his job that he discovers the break-in because he notices that the lock has been taped. But I think it's Borson's article that says, in actuality, even half-assed burglars know enough to know you never tape it horizontally. So right, that the, you do it the vertically. Tape, you do vertically tape it because then no one can see it. In truth, Willis came across it because by chance he happened to be going through yeah, this through door. That. Like you said, it's a cinematic truth because I think the audience would not have bought yes. it. You'd almost have to explain the chaos right. element. You know, how much of a change is, of course, is enough of a change before you start undermining the truth, which, of course, in a film about uncovering the truth about journalism, any decision you make is somewhat fraught. But I thought it was really interesting, the fact that they engaged with it that much and did think about that. And he says, to end that anecdote, that it's akin to what the reporter tells Jimmy Stewart in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact print the legend. Right. And this is a movie that is about the legend that Woodward and Bernstein were already becoming. And so as much, and this goes back to that 1975 Washington Post article where all the journos are complaining like, well, they better get it right. Like, you know, I hope they don't glamorize it too much. But of course they do glamorize it to a certain extent. It makes me appreciate the professionalism of these Hollywood people of, they're not glamorizing it too much, but they're glamorizing it enough so that the greater capital T truth is actually better expressed. Right. We now have a toll-free telephone number. That's and right. And we would like listeners to call us. Let me log in so I can figure out what our number is because I purposely chose a good one. And what we want you to do is something like call us and leave us a message. Do I need to be That's more it. specific than that, Chris? Yeah. You could say anything you want. You anyway, can have suggestions of what we should do, shouldn't do. You tell know. us a movie that you've got to watch all the way through whenever it's on. Things that you hate in movies. I would think that something we would have fun with is if people said, I want you guys to address this trope and let us find some examples to say, we got this great voicemail from a listener and they mentioned this filmic trope. Call us toll free 855-755-5322. That's 855-755-5322. That is very memorable. Yeah. 855- 5755-5322. Yeah. Um, now, Chris is going to record a clever voicemail thing so that when you call, you're going to hear him and he's going to figure out how to do it. Yeah, there's value added. A couple of interesting locations. Of course, Washington, D.C. itself features prominently. But I didn't know that some of the more famous locations were 3,000 miles away. For example, all of the secret meetings with Deep Throat and Woodward are actually filmed beneath the ABC Entertainment Complex in Century City, uh, adjacent to Beverly Hills. Couldn't find a good enough parking lot. And the exterior of the garage was in Arlington, Virginia. As we said, all of the newspaper scenes were filmed on a soundstage in Los Angeles. They did receive permission to film in the White House, which was rescinded the day before shooting. Yes. I think they also rescinded, but I guess they must have gotten it back, the Library of Congress. The Library permission. of Congress. Like they said that the government sort of changed overnight yeah. <laughs> decided to, uh, to not be helpful. I also love the way we see the headlines that we've been following is because a car is entering the White House and going through security and showing his ID badge. And then on the seat next to him are several copies of the paper and then a wide shot of the White House and the implication being this is all being absorbed internally. They are following the story or leading them where they want the story to go because there's the famous moment where they get it wrong. What an interesting choice because this is the end of the film. Yeah, and that's the other brilliant choice is to lop off probably the second half of the book, which follows all the stuff that we just see in quick teletype at the very end of the film, which are all the resignations, all the guilty pleas, and then Nixon resigning. But the penultimate moment is they fall into a trap of printing a story that is on its face false, even though underneath it's actually true. And that's where they keep going back 
um, to uh, Stephen the dad Collins. From he was Seventh Heaven. <laughs> the dad from Seventh Heaven. This is his screen debut. Really? Yes. He's great in this. And this is one of the many scenes where Bernstein uses a version of people won't go on the record. So it's like, what if we wrote a story? And I can't, what's the name of the guy they want to say? They want to say Haldeman. Oh, yeah. What if we wrote a story saying Haldeman was the fifth person who controlled the slush fund at Creep? And Stephen Collins famously says, let me put it this way. I wouldn't have a problem if you wrote a story like that. He has two sources, but in both yeah. cases, it's sort of so convoluted. It is Haldeman. They were right. But I think what they printed was that he was named in the grand jury. Yes. And the guy hadn't said it in the grand jury specifically. But what a great note to end on this sort of small failure or yes. a small mistake. Or, yes. You know, guess depending on your point of view. And then, uh, but Ben Bradley's sort of response to it. And of course, this ties into just what journalism is supposed to be. Is like, so you keep going. Here's a little clip of Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein using one version of his way to confirm sources. Hi, this is Carl. I'm sorry to disturb you now, but we're going with the story that Holden was the fifth man in control of the fund. And they're hassling us here. We got three confirmations, but if you could just help us, I'd appreciate it. Look, I won't say anything about Haldeman, not ever. I understand that we wouldn't want you to do that. We know it's against the law for you to say anything. If there's some way you could warn us to hold on the story, we'd appreciate it. I'd really like to help you, but I can't. Look, I'm going to count to ten, all right? If there's any reason we should hold on the story, hang up the phone before I get to ten. If the story's all right, you'll just be on the phone after I get to ten, all right? Hang up, right? That's right. You got it? Yeah. We're straight. All right, I'm going to start counting. Okay? Are we all right? Yeah. Okay, I'm counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You got it straight now? Everything okay? Everything's fine. Did he confirm what happened? I said if I get to ten and you don't hang up, it's solid. Did he confirm it? Absolutely. You got to tell Bradley. Bernstein got another source. The guy just is confirmed. Is any doubt? We can run it tomorrow. You don't have to. The story's solid. We're sure of it. He just got off the phone with his gold. Okay, we go with it. It's so great. It's like, it's such a human construct, like what passes for confirmation. Yeah. You need sources. Do you need sources on the record? Well, that would be great. However, we don't need that. We can have an off the record source give a confirmation. They just get a bunch of weird ways like that to try and convince themselves that what they think is true is true. What happens the next day is Hugh, Hugh Sloan never mentioned Haldeman in his grand jury testimony, and they all have egg on their faces. Of course, it turns out Hugh Sloan would have named Haldeman, but no one asked him. <laughs> the fix was in in the grand jury testimony. Yeah. That calls back to when Bradley said to them- The Hoover story. So that's what's so cool about the weird and bold choice to end the film, essentially right after what we just saw because it's really not about what then occurred. It's about all the essential reporting that occurred up to the point where then the justice system took over and charges were filed and people were indicted and trials took place. And then the president was forced right. to resign. 
Spoiler for spoiler for, for 2020 the United States of America. And man, that dolly shot there, which is one of the more amazing ones. Yeah. Watch it again just for those dolly shots. Those are fucking amazing. It's not just a straight line. The camera might be moving in a straight line, but the actors are running away from the camera and then coming back to it. It's serpentine on their movement, all done in these single takes. And you have a lot of complicated dialogue going on and they got to come here and meet and then we're going to run over this way and go to Bradley's office and then we're going to go back over and here and catch him in the yeah. elevator. It's crazy. Would you like to move on to alternative casting? Yes, I would. Put that one back. I'll just start by saying that Ben Bradley himself suggested your man, George C. Scott. <laughs> Probably moved by his performance as Mussolini. I pledge my life upon this battleground, ready to kill if that is required, or to die. <laughs> That's just to enable you to cut that back in. Go back to that well. I'm assuming people love it as much as we now, do. Now, that gives you an indication of Ben Bradley's self-image, I guess, yeah. that the man best known for playing a tyrannical general would be best suited to play him. George C. Scott would have been good, but a little... Uh, Robards has a more society feel, which I think is a very important part of the Ben Bradley mythos. Right. He's hobnobbing with the Kennedys, and he's in Washington society. George C. Scott is a little bit more of an outsider to me. Right. Uh, another one, though, this is from that uh, 75 article. Yeah. He does say it was a joke, but that Bradley suggested Fred Astaire. Oh. Also would be another good one to play. I him. didn't see that. That's funny. Uh, and then there were a few names that also went in that. That uh, And again, this it's funny because this is written before this was actually cast. This said, executive editor Bradley described in the preliminary script as 50, tough and bright, as someone who scares everybody, may be played by Richard Widmark, Jason Robards, Henry Fonda, Kirk Douglas, or even Gregory Peck. Those would have been really interesting. But I think Richard Widmark, I love Richard Widmark. He doesn't have that society aspect. Henry Fonda just doesn't have the fear part to me. And I think at that time, he was also the oldest. He's oldest. Kirk Douglas, I mean, just going Kirk everywhere is probably like, not a good yeah, idea. He's punching everybody. It, he's not, I just get can't get him out of my mind from- um, The Fury? The Fury. Yeah. <laughs> Gregory Peck would have been interesting, but too, he's probably too old at that point. I don't know. Robards is perfect. I saw that um, some others that they considered for Bradley were, I don't know if this is true, Leslie Nielsen? Did you read that? Did I, really? That's what that I didn't see. Uh, oh, Hal Holbrook was actually parts that could have been. Yeah, Hal Holbrook was considered for Deep Throat. I mean, for um, for Bradley. Uh huh. Carl Malden, Christopher Plummer, Anthony Quinn, Gene Hackman, Burt Lancaster, Robert Stack. Ah, Robert Stack. Robert been. Mitchum and Telly Savalas. How'd you like to see Telly Savalas as Ben Bradley? Um, Al Pacino for Bernstein. Yes, which I think would have. Would have worked. I think every time. film we've done in the 70s, Al Pacino was considered for the, <laughs> the lead role. Um, I think, and also Al Pacino and Dustin Hoffman see each other at a lot of the auditions in these true. days. Did you read about the meeting that Redford had with Hal Ashby to direct? What happened in the meeting? Well, I just heard that they that they had a meeting and basically Redford came out of it thinking, too druggy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which was my, which was, which was true. I thought too. Which absolutely, was true. yeah. Uh, and that was not what he was really looking. Yeah, for. Yeah, this would have been a six-hour movie. It would have been very <laughs> lagubrious. You know, interestingly, Catherine Graham, another storied personality right, who, who doesn't appear in the post, movie, who doesn't appear. And I guess there had been a draft where she did have a scene. Yeah. And so I think they did cast. Did she film her scenes? They did not film her scenes, okay. but, but ended up. Geraldine Page was selected, but the scene was cut from the script. Mm. And then I also read that she refused the role. So who knows? Maybe that even might, might have helped them cut it. That was one of the things that I think, uh, I think in that 75 article too, there was some concern. I mean, she was a towering figure. 
And I think there was more concern of pissing her off than there was Ben Bradley, who was his own towering figure. Yeah. Uh, another interesting thing was, uh, <laughs> this doesn't count necessarily as alternative casting, but uh, the guy, Simons, who yes. Martin Balsam played, uh, I guess he and Ben Bradley, their relationship suffered because of True. this. And he didn't this like is, the way he was portrayed. He didn't like the way he was portrayed. And I actually think this is sort of an interesting story. I thought Balsam was great. Listen, but, you know, he, he was like, what about Stallone? Stallone's. <laughs> Why don't you have him play me? Did he really want Stallone? No, no, no. Oh, he didn't like that he was played by someone who he thought looked like a nebbish or something. Well, also right? that he was like second banana. Like he didn't he didn't right. do too much in the story. And I think this is this is interesting. And I think some of the, the journalists are, are a little bit sympathetic to like, you know, you had to funnel things down for dramatic purposes. Yes. But they were saying that in reality, there was much more editing going on. Of course. Directly of the stories. Of and course, think, the editors wanted to be a movie about editors right. and how they brilliantly edited the people doing the work. Uh, but that was just one uh, <laughs> one situation where, <laughs> where, like I said, you know, he, you know, I think he died 10 years or so after the film. I think he would have grown into appreciation. I think I'm so going to give him the benefit I of that. I think so, too. Another couple funny things I wanted to mention in the cast, just because I like this type of thing. So yeah. the script supervisor. You know, it's a very important role in a movie like this, the continuity. No, you know, you said that earlier. This is exactly where we are. We can't forget anything. It's one of those jobs on a film set that's like vitally, vitally important. The script supervisor on this was a woman named Karen Wookie. And Karen Wookie was the granddaughter, not of Chewbacca, as you might expect, Chris. I know that's where you were going. Uh, But of Gilligan's Island skipper, Alan Hale. Yes. Wow. (laughs) And Valerie Curtin. She's the cousin of Jane Curtin. You know Saturday Night Live's Jane Curtin? Yes, of course. And Kate Nally's Kate Jane Nally's, Curtin. Sorry. Can you're you ever Kate, forgive me, Jane you're Curtin? You're a big Kate Nally guy. I love it. Anyway, Valerie Curtin is, she's Miss Milland in the movie. I'm not really sure who that is. Well, let's see. Oh, she's, oh, yes, she's this woman. Loved her. She was really good. Yes. Do you remember yes. her? Excellent. And yes. So she's the one who's kind of opened the door and doesn't want to talk to them and kind of is very emotional about it. Especially because they return. They return. They leave. They come yes. back. And again, Jane Alexander, so great as the bookkeeper who finally does tell tell them a lot of information. And of course, Chris, I would be remiss not to cite the several instances of the CCU. The CCU. Yes. You're even doing it now. I, know. I don't even have to track it anymore. I noticed one, but I, like I said, I did not want to steal. No, no, no. Say, which one, which is the one that you noticed? I noticed that uh, Penny Fuller, who played Sally Aiken. <laughs> uh, actually, one thing that, that did confuse me a little bit because she and uh, Lindsay Krause, uh, because of their hairstyles and stuff. Sure, it, a little similar. It was a little bit similar. And her character, uh, Aiken, actually does come up with this list of the employees from Creep. Yes. And so I, and because I sort of wasn't sure if it was the same character or not, but it was a different character. And she had been able to, through a relationship with somebody who worked for Creep, Mm -hmm. was able to uh, get this employment record. But she, besides episodes of all sorts of TV, was in an episode of Columbo in 1990 called Agenda for Murder. Yes. Columbo's Cinematic Universe. Ah, one more thing. Where she played Mrs. Finch. Directed by? Directed by? Patrick McGowan. Really? Yes. Was he in that one? Because I know he was in a few. He was also in it, yes. Oh, I love Patrick McGowan. I am not an empire. I am a free man. Patrick McGowan was a, let's list the important acting qualities for lead bad guys in Columbo episodes. (laughs) Number one, scenery chewing ham. Check. (laughs) (laughs) That's right when you have a Patrick McGuhan whose twitchy face, hmm, uh, uh, yes, 
he, he's just priceless. He probably yeah, you have to be a little bit past your sell-by date. He's too. been so many. You gotta be a little bit, but still have that. It's kind of like Leonardo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like when summoned up, you can yeah, really deliver. You can still bring it. Yep. Or Most. you can be Donald Pleasance in the wine scene <laughs> in a port in any storm. <laughs> so yes, Chris, correct. Props for digging out Penny Fuller. That's a 1990 Columbo. That's like doesn't even count really in my <laughs> mind. That's not the era I'm interested in. Also. So Joe, the FBI agent that Dustin Hoffman frequently visits. Uh-huh. That's, oh, yeah. That's He's Jess, so <laughs> Jess Osuna is really good. Yeah. Now, he was in Three Days of the Condor with Redford. He was in Kramer versus Kramer after this. So he obviously was like tight with these guys. He was in a classic era Columbo, Old Fashioned Murder, which is a great episode with Joyce Van Patten. The spinster head of a family-run museum murders her brother when he threatens to dissolve the financially strapped institution. A lot of Columbo cinematic universe. There you have it. We should do the awards. It was nominated for eight Oscars. Did not win Best Picture. Uh, that went to Rocky. Fucking that Rocky. Year. You know what? Again, this is because of the time where people just want to go to the movies to get away. We yeah. just want to be wrapped up in the mythos of Rocky. We don't want to. Of course, are we still watching? Yes, we are still watching <laughs> Rocky. So there's not much I can say about yeah, it. Yeah, they haven't done a musical of all the president's men. <laughs> okay, so it won Best Art Direction. It won Best Sound. And it had nominations for Best Director, Best Editing, Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay. It did win Best Adapted Screenplay. I'm sorry. Ironically, Goldman won after all that. And Jason Robards won for Best Supporting Actor. Yes. And Jane Alexander was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, which is great. I mean, she only had those two scenes. Yeah. But they were so important. And you know what's great about her scene story? Let's just play a little of that because I want to talk something about her that's so cool. I can't be... Positive that that money was used for the break-in, you understand? Yes, I do. But uh, people sure are worried. Which people? Think you could help me with the uh, uh, disbursement of money in terms of the number of people that were involved? How many? A group of them, about five. I don't know their names. Would Mr. Uh, Sloan know? Here you are. Would, would he have any... I, I don't want to say anymore, okay? I, I won't be much longer. I wondered if you could just help me a little bit about the... the, the money. We, we hear all kinds of figures. There's so much of it. How, how much is so much? In one two-day period, six million dollars came in. Six? Six million cash. Mm-hmm. We didn't know where to put it all. <laughs> I thought it was all legal. I mean, I, I guess I did until after the break-in when I remembered Gordon got so much of it. This is Mr. Liddy. It's also rotten. It's getting worse. And the only one I care about is Hugh Sloan. His wife was going to leave him if he didn't stand up and do what was right. So he quit. I was wondering if uh, Hugh Sloan was being set up now as a fall guy for John Mitchell. What do you think? (laughs) If you guys could get John Mitchell, that would be beautiful. Jane Alexander was appearing, I think, in a play in D.C. at the time that they were filming, and that's how they settled on her. 
She tells this story about how she came in this day to film this scene, and that's how she arrived. That's her own makeup, and that's what she was wearing. She says, I came from the theater and was like sweaty and just wearing my own summer dress. Yes. Uh, the director saw her and said, oh, okay, great. She said, oh, no, I, I've got to go get in the, I've got to get hair and makeup and get in warm. He's like, how you look, what you're wearing, it's perfect. Let's do it right now. And that's her own clothes and her own hair and makeup. And again, she just has two scenes in the movie that are so important. And this scene between Dustin Hoffman and her is so great for how pushy he's being and how bad he is at trying to not seem pushy while being pushy, which I love. He can't help but sort of be annoying, such as at the end of the scene when her sister has invited him in and given him coffee. And that's the whole reason (laughs) that he's able to entice her into this conversation. And he takes one more sip of the coffee and he goes, Coffee's cold. God, she was good. And I think they said this was even in the real woman's home that they oh, was actually it? used oh, that Oh, I didn't set. know that. In real life, Judy Hoback was the bookkeeper who gave Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward crucial information about the slush fund payouts uh, at the committee to reelect the president. Mm. Jane Alexander met with Hoback to prepare for her role in the film. Also, the filmmakers rented out Hoback's former home in Georgetown, D.C. Wow. and shot the scenes with Alexander Dustin Hoffman in the actual living room where Hoback had first met with Bernstein. That's great. She was saying, I think, in the same thing when talking about showing up from the show in her own dress and stuff, that it was a very hot day. Yes. And putting them together and being thrown into like that, that added so much to the tension Mm -hmm. that would have been there inherently. Yeah, the verisimilitude. You can feel good that it won for Jason Robards. You feel good that it won for Art Direction because it, it deserves it for that alone. But my God... To not win Best Editing or Best Picture or Best Director. Or... All right, Chris, anything else? No, I think that's it. Okay. I didn't prepare anything else. I don't have any headlines. I don't have any rants and raves. Yeah, not, what are you I don't have any latchkey TV. Well, I'll tell you <laughs> what really I have. really disappoint all the viewers. I have a listeners. rave that's a little bit late, but uh, I still think worth saying. Uh, you finally saw. Uh, all the presidents met. No. <laughs> uh, Fleabag. I finally finished Fleabag, which I had watched the first season and started the second season, and then life got in the way. And then after it had won the Emmys a couple weeks ago, it reminded me that I hadn't finished season two. And I love this show so much. And it's one of those things which I I think I expected it to not live up to the expectations. Mm -hmm. And it surpassed it. It is both so funny, but also incredibly character-driven and goes and finds some real depth. And in some ways, it seems like a very obvious prestige. It, like, yeah. it seems so similar to so many other, like, comedian-driven, sure. professional, quasi-real-life things. But it has something. None of them have. And actually a real depth and, and something very thoughtful at its center and dealing with some uh, some topics that I think are very interesting in, in, a, in an exciting way. Uh, and Super Listener Sarah, I know she had been a huge fan mm-hmm. and had mentioned it uh, and uh, so thank you for mentioning it because it's really, it's really wonderful. Speaking of super listener, Sarah, I don't want to be the person to point out that you never availed yourself of taking home the coffee the gift, which yes. you purchased for you. Yes. Still uh, sitting over here. Would you like to make a public apology to super listener, Sarah, for not taking home the gift she bought for you? Uh, no, I'm good. Thank really? you. Really? <laughs> wow. I'll grab it. So close. It so was, close to just uh, <laughs> throwing off something that doesn't cost you anything to be a good guy. And now you're again going oh, to I could do, Or I could just cut this whole thing out and she'll never know that I hadn't taken <laughs> you it You wouldn't do that. I know you. <laughs> You'll allow truth to, to rot out. No, no, no. I'm, no, I'm neither Woodward nor Bernstein. <laughs> 
So until next week, if you're thinking about a change of vocation, let Hollywood's ongoing tradition of warts and all nuanced depictions of different professions, like all the president's men, be your career counselor. What could go wrong? I heard the best of the best were going to be back here, so... Uh... This could be complicated. You know, on the first one, I crashed and burned. And the second? I don't know. But, uh, it's looking good so far.